Father, I once again come to you to ask your blessing on this time of worship. I pray that Christ would be glorified in the preaching of your word. I pray that you would keep me from error, that I would decrease, and that Christ would increase. For it's in his precious and holy name that we ask these things. Amen. The subject that we are talking about this morning and for the next couple of weeks is the subject of discipline, and it is a subject that I am familiar with just from my own upbringing and the issues and the uh, fun that I caused my parents, I'm sure. But now it is coming back to me twofold in my children as well as I start to see that... um, cute sin nature coming out in in my two daughters, but it is in fact there, and discipline is now a necessary part of our day-to-day life as they are now drawn to things like uh, electrical outlets and different things that might hurt them. So this is a very, um, this is a message for myself uh, very much so as well. Um, in the com- in the raising of children, but also in my Christian walk, and I hope that it, it can be a blessing to you as well. But I find it very interesting when I come to passage passages like the one that we are going to be looking at today. Uh, when I began to study and research this certain word, the kinds of things that I found on the internet, and we know that the internet can be a uh, pitfall of some sorts of. A lot of different information, some good and some very, very bad and pointless. But I did a lot of research on the word discipline and and what discipline looks like for this particular message. And this is a rabbit hole that goes incredibly deep into the recesses of the Internet. But the most common conclusion that I found when it came to something as spanking a child, that was one of the big topics that was um, on the front lines of this research, spanking a child as a form of discipline is that it concludes and encourages, remember this is not me, this is the internet, bad behavior, a high risk of mental health issues, and a rise in aggression over time. The acceptance of this varies. In 2016, A study showed 76% of men think that spanking a child is an acceptable form of discipline, whereas 65% of women hold that same belief. It then breaks down a little bit more. Only 30% of Asian Americans approve of the practice, while 82% of African Americans approve. For Caucasians, Native Americans, and Hispanics, the number sits in the low to mid-70s across the board, 70%. And it breaks down even more from this, based on religion. 78% of self-identified Christians approve of the practice, and 66% of non-Christians. Spanking is the most popular in the South, with a 78% approval and it's least likely in the Northeast with a 63% approval. And I'll let you do with that what you will, based on the cities and cultures there. And keep in mind this, just because a group thinks this type of discipline is okay doesn't necessarily actually mean that these groups practice this type of discipline for their children. So if this study is correct, and keep in mind this was six years ago, we have a majority of Americans 
approving of spanking while these results of heightened aggression and bad behavior are also in their faces. So, what do we do with that? We look to the other side of the studies, and many of these studies are from Christian universities, like this one from 2010 from Calvin College. Surveyed 2,600 people, 179 of whom were teenagers. The conclusion was that children who were spanked by their parents seemed to perform better in school and grow up and grew up to be happier than those who did not receive such punishment. These studies also had a better these these students also had a better outlook on life whereas they were more likely to volunteer their time to help others. These studies did not from what I saw take into consideration the type of behavior that led to spanking or these types of disciplines, but it does indicate that discipline is absolutely necessary in life. And don't, we don't just know this by college studies. We take that with whatever grain of salt we want to take them with, but we know this because we see it over and over again throughout Scripture. Proverbs is a wonderful place to go when we want to look at this word discipline. We have Proverbs chapter 10, verse 17 that says, Whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life, but whoever ignores correction leads others astray. For Proverbs 12, 1, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. That's ESV. I love that. Proverbs 13, 1, a wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a mocker does not respond to rebukes. In verse 24 of that same chapter, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. We get to Job 5, verses 17 and 18. Blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. So how about the New Testament? One verse in Revelation, I think, shows so simply the necessity of discipline as well as the purpose of it. Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. This is the letter to the lukewarm church of Laodicea. True discipline is done in love and is for the purpose of repentance. When we join a biblical church, we submit ourselves under the discipline of that church. That if there is ongoing sin, the church has the authority in Scripture, to discipline, to carry out discipline. The purpose of church discipline is not to embarrass anybody or to make fun of them and for, or for us to see them as less than we are, but the point to church discipline and the point to any, uh, any discipline is to bring a person into right and good standing to repentance. It is for their benefit that discipline is carried out so that they might repent. It is a good thing. It is a necessary thing for a healthy church, healthy society, and to be good parents. To be a true son or daughter of God is to be disciplined by God. And this should be very encouraging to anybody who here who is saved this morning. 
Just as you knew or know that your parents love you in the way that they discipline you, this is part of our assurance that comes with our salvation and our faith, that the Father who we worship loves us, and we can see that through the discipline we experience in our lives, through the various tests and trials. And remember, this verse is a continuation of the previous verses from chapter 11, especially the last part that talked about those who were persecuted for their faith and went through many horrific trials. We have the testimony of this great cloud of witnesses. Then we have Christ, who endured for sinners such hostility so that you may not grow faint or weary. We always have to come back to Christ, Christ's example. Christ's sacrifice, Christ's death and his resurrection, what he suffered at the hand of sinners, but ultimately was brought on by God according to his perfect will. See, often we think of suffering as something that God will just bring us out of or that God will just walk, us, walk with us through. But oftentimes, I will hear Christians say that suffering isn't from God. God wouldn't let us suffer. God doesn't want us to suffer. If God loves us, he will keep us from this type of suffering. But sometimes God lets us suffer to test us and show us how he's going to bring us out of it. And yes, suffering to test us and show us how he brings it out of, bring us out of it, yes, this is true. God will do that, but God will oftentimes bring people out of suffering, not necessarily every time in the sense of keeping our lives, but in the taking of our reward in heaven, suffering unto death. But how often do we think of God being the one who brings us to the suffering as well as the one who brings brings about the way of suffering? I think about Christ's temptation in the wilderness when he was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And of course, Christ was perfect, and he did what the first Adam did not do. Christ fulfilled the law. Christ kept the law. Christ perfectly obeyed. But the Bible is still clear that the Spirit is the one who led him to the wilderness. Sproul says this, God's plan to lead many sons to glory meant that the author of their salvation was to be perfect, perfected or completed through sufferings, chapter 2, verse 10 of Hebrews, even though he was the son who deserved no suffering. That's chapter 5, verse 8. It is not surprising, then, that the adopted sons who follow him should be prepared for their inheritance through painful discipline. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. Not everyone will suffer the same But we suffer and struggle against sin, against those who hate us because of our faith. The author of Hebrews here is setting up his readers. We see this verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The struggle the audience of the book of Hebrews uh, were seeing, I'm sure the struggles were legitimate. But it's made clear that the struggles have not gotten to the point of, of shedding of blood, of Christ's suffering as suggested by the context, or the suffering of those in the latter part of chapter 11. They had not, they had not yet martyrs. 
Nobody had died yet for their faith in this particular audience. They had not yet gotten to the point of having blood shed. But they were discouraged. We come to church week after week, and we hear the message of the gospel. We sit in family worship in our homes, and we hear the truth of Christ. We open our Bibles to do our daily reading, and we see over and over again the promises that are laid out in Scripture of the faithfulness of God and all the things that He has promised to do, and yet still find ourselves discouraged sometimes when bad things happen in our lives. Remember, this book of Hebrews, Hebrews was written to, a, to Jewish Christians who were tempted to go back to the old ways, to go back to Judaism, back to the old ways of things. The author spends so much of time at the beginning of the book saying that there is nothing to go back to, explaining that there is nothing there, that there is no more need for a high priest because Christ is the better high priest. There is no more need for sacrifice because Christ is the perfect once-for-all sacrifice for sins. Christ is a better Moses. He is the better Melchizedek. There was nothing for them to go back to. So the question can be asked, if we've confessed Christ and made him the Lord of our lives, if we've left the old ways and turned to this new way, why do we still suffer? Why does God still allow us to suffer? Why is there still suffering for a Christian? And there are those out there who will tell you to turn to Christ and all of your problems will be solved. That once you become a Christian, you shouldn't expect hardships in your life. You won't suffer anymore. This is essentially the message of the prosperity gospel. The message that leads so many astray. If anything bad happens to you, it's either because you didn't have enough faith or that kind of joke that you hear, oh, it was the devil. The devil made me do it, right? There's a well-known preacher, and you've heard me, I'm sure, talk about him before, and I know the, the youth have heard me talk about him as we've gone through certain sections of the Bible that this is relevant, but he's the pastor of a church called Bethel Church in Redding, California, and this is a quote by him. He says, I refuse to create a theology that allows for sickness. And he has also said that it is always God's will to heal. It's man-centeredness. It's nonsense. And there's nothing about a message like that that produces discipline in our faith. When we have these faith healers that talk about these lives that we should live with no sickness or no ex expectation of sickness, the interesting thing is this pastor wears glasses. Never trust a faith healer who wears glasses. And then the horrible reality of life. This is a man who has told many people that they should never expect cancer in their lives. His wife recently passed away from cancer. It's a tragic message that these people produce, and it leads so many astray. There's nothing about this that allows for God to actually discipline his children and to correct them. And that's what this word discipline lends itself to. Correction, training, bringing up. There is the harshness of discipline that comes with sin, but there is also a gentleness of discipline in redirection and correction. Not every challenge or trials to happen to us is because we commit some horrible sin. 
but a way for God to test, strengthen, and sanctify us. If God wasn't behind these different trials and tests, there would be no benefit to them. There would be no point to them. People have argued with me and said, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And, of course, I don't jump right into the, well, no one is good, no, not one. That doesn't really get anywhere. But usually my response comes to, well, if, if God isn't behind it, or if God doesn't allow it, or if God isn't the one orchestrating and sovereign over it, then it's pointless. Then the bad things that happen to people have no point, they have no end goal, and it's just random life. But if God is the one who ordains and orchestrates and is sovereign over these, then me and my faith in Christ, in God, knows that it was for my good and for my benefit ultimately, to grow me, to sanctify me, whatever God wants to do. But if these things are from God, then there, like I said, is a purpose to them. Consider Job. The story of Job, I'm sure we're all familiar with it, but if you're not, you have this character of the Old Testament named Job, who is a blameless and righteous man. That's not to say he was without sin, but he was saved, he was a faithful man, and God counted him as righteous. He made sacrifices, not only for himself, but even for, on behalf of his children, in case they sinned. He was kind of an of a overachiever in that way. Remember, Satan approaches God on his throne at the beginning and says, you know, if you do something bad to Job, if you take away everything that he has, surely he will curse you. Surely he will come against you. And God says, okay, go. Do, do evil to him. Take away what he has. And so Satan goes off and Job loses everything. Job loses his children. Job loses his livestock. The only thing that Job still has to his name is his wife. And she tells him to curse God and die. I think Satan saw that and said, I think she's good there. Anyway. But we know that Job, though he struggled, we see it at the beginning over and over, yet he did not curse God. And Job's friends come in and they do what many friends often do and they make situations worse. And there's all these different trials going on. There's Job and his friends, Job, Satan, God and Satan, God and Job. But the one thing that we see in chapter 42, after all of this is done, after God restores Job, verses 10 and 11, we see this. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Now we know this verse can stumble some people. Some people. We know that God is perfect, He is perfectly holy, He is perfectly good. So this verse isn't speaking of a moral evil. But if we consider Isaiah 45, verse 7, in the King James Version, it reads this, I form the light and create darkness, I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do these things. 
This is compared to the English Standard Version, which reads, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. 1 John 1.5 tells us that God is light, in Him there is no darkness. So this can't refer to evil in the context of sin or moral darkness. God, the only thing he does is good in accordance with his nature. God is sovereign and all-powerful. He does as he pleases according to his perfect will. Everything that God does is good. Everything that God permits is ultimately for the good of those who belong to him and are called according to his purpose. The crucifixion of Jesus is an example was the most evil thing ever done. The Son of God, the Messiah, killed. Yet, it was ordained by God, part of God's eternal plan of salvation, and orchestrated by God using people such as Judas and Caiaphas and Pilate and the Roman Empire to carry out the event. The Bible does not excuse the actions and the choices of these men, but it is made clear that this was the will of God. It pleased God to crush him. Discipline molds us. Discipline forms us. Just like a child, if there was no discipline from parents, there would be no understanding of true right and wrong, true morality, patience, and gentleness. It would be complete anarchy in our world. In the same way, in our Christian walk, It's not that we accept Christ and get to carry on living the way that we did before our salvation, before our redemption, but in the actual case, it is that we change, our hearts are changed, our hearts go from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, that we hate what is evil, we turn from what is evil, and we turn to righteousness, we turn to holiness. If we look at ourselves after our conversion and we see that we don't hate sin, that we don't see a change, the fruits of salvation in us, this might be a need to examine ourselves to see if we are actually within the faith. But when we submit to the Lord, we are disciplined, corrected, chastised. The perfect love of a father That's a good thing, church, a very good thing. It's not fun, as we see later in the passage. It's not something that's really we we enjoy, but it is for our benefit, and it's far less than what we deserve. We deserve punishment for our sins, but that was taken fully by Christ on the cross. Those who say that God should always heal us or never allow any kind of tribulation to fall upon Christians, have taken their attention off of the true meaning of the cross. Because you and I should be receiving what is owed to us for our sin. And to know Christ took that place, that he took our place, and it should cause us to flee from sin. It should cause us to abandon sin sin and run to the cross of Christ if we knew the price that was paid for our sin to see what sin deserves we have no room to complain about discipline in our lives because we have no case to make to God 
And verse 5 and 6 here are good reminders to us when we think that God may be doing a little too much. It says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the, dis- the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the, Lord's discipline, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The Lord does as he pleases. And if you belong to him this morning, he does it for your good. And God works in all different ways. Whatever we seems good for him to call the elect to himself. After September 11th, churches around the nation saw a 25% increase in attendance. Now, church attendance doesn't really mean anything in the grand scheme of things. 45,000 people today, right now, are gathered at Lakewood Church, which is Joel Osteen's church, and they won't hear a single bit of the gospel. But when churches that do preach the gospel and are true to the gospel of Christ saw these 25% increase, more people heard the gospel, and I'm sure a few of them probably got saved. A horrific event that we should never forget and will never forget or take light, but God used it to bring his elect to himself and other things and other ways that we don't know. We have no idea what God is going to do, and we don't need to know. We do, however, need to be ready for whatever may come. We have it very easy right now in the United States. I know there's a lot of talk and a lot of freedoms looking like they're getting pulled away, but we really do have it quite easy. But we need to be ready for what is to come. Consider the churches in China or North Korea or Muslim-occupied areas or any other place where Christianity is met with extreme hostility and danger. But that doesn't mean we won't ever see any of that here in the United States or in the West. I think COVID revealed the desires of corrupt and evil leaders and their attitudes towards God and his church. Pastors being arrested, churches being closed down, the progressive agenda have emboldened evil to show its face more clearly. California is now a sanctuary state for both abortion and child gender reassignment. No parental consent required. A billboard around California and in other states advertising California's now uh, free, free services offers, uh, it quotes Mark chapter 12, verse 31, which says, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. On an abortion billboard. Not only does this leave out the first part of the passage in the commandment that says to love God, and to understand what that actually means, but it perverts the words of Christ. It blasphemes the holy word of God. We are not beyond persecution here in the West, and we're seeing it make its way slowly in. We may not be to the point in our struggle against it where we have shed blood, but we are to the point where we need to stop making excuses. If you lost everything tomorrow, what would your attitude be? Are we actively striving to lay aside those sins that entangle us, as we see in verse 1 of this chapter? Are we fixing our eyes on Christ, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, as we move forward in this dark and unsettling world? Do we despise or take lightly the discipline of the Lord? Or do we look at what God is doing, whatever He chooses to do, and submit to it, knowing it's for the strengthening of our faith and endurance, 
for our benefit like a perfect father and his children. If you are here this morning and you do not know the Lord, if Christ is not the Lord of your life, there is no discipline for you, but there is punishment. But today the offer is being made. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ, the only one who is worthy and able to take away your sins. Bow the knee and submit to the discipline of the Lord. None of us know what tomorrow holds or even the next hour holds. Turn to Christ. If you are here this morning and you are a Christian, I hope you are encouraged. It's just the beginning of these verses on discipline. One of the greatest encouragements to know is that God loves us and that God disciplines those whom he loves in the tender way that a father loves his own children. For up until the day our father calls us home, we will continue to be disciplined, corrected, and redirected, molded, and sanctified, and conformed more and more into the image of Christ Jesus, the great joy of this great salvation. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for your word. Thank you for making yourself known to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us, not because there is or was anything on display that was lovely in us, but because you are love and have put that love on display in the saving of those whom you have called to yourself. Father, many times the most difficult prayer we can pray is for discipline and correction. But Lord, where there is a need to be corrected and disciplined, I pray that you would bring it, that you would continue to make us holy by the sanctifying power of your Spirit as we continue in our worship this morning. I pray that you would be glorified. I pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.